Can I just say, as we study the judgments that are unleashed on this earth during the tribulation, and as you reflect on the gathering storm of the wrath of God and of the Lamb, you need to thank the Lord Jesus Christ that He rescues us from the wrath to come. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the Bible say about heaven? What comes to mind? Do you picture in your mind a place where cherubim play their harps while floating amongst the clouds? Or could it be you have a more accurate picture of heaven based on Scripture, but it's perhaps one far smaller in scale and scope than you ever imagined? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new eight-part series titled, He is Worthy. Without question, the fullest description of heaven and all that surrounds the throne room of God comes from the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. Throughout this series, Tom will explore the activity and wonders of heaven, a place of indescribable beauty and wonder, with God Himself at its very center. And He is indeed worthy beyond all comparison. So the question is, do you have a biblical vision of heaven? Well, Tom, there certainly seems to be many inaccurate depictions of heaven in our culture. Isn't that so? You know, Bill, that's exactly right. There is so much confusion in the world today about the nature of heaven. And I think that's true even among those who are followers of Jesus Christ. I think the most common perception of heaven is that we're going to be floating around on clouds playing harps. The truth is, nothing could be farther from the biblical portrayal of heaven. We need to make sure that we let the scripture correct our thinking and, and direct our minds toward what heaven is really like. And that's what we want to do together. We're going to be ushered into the very presence of God to see through the eyes of the Apostle John what heaven is really like. And we see at the very center of that our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take the journey together into our future. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. People are fascinated with heaven. Honestly, I think as things get even worse in our world, that fascination begins to ratchet up. And it's really not surprising since the Bible itself refers to heaven more than 500 times. It's not uncommon for people to even claim that they have actually visited heaven in a vision and they've returned to tell us all that they saw. Several years ago, a couple of books made the rounds across the Christian world written by authors who made that very claim. The most famous, that which claimed that a young boy had visited heaven, was eventually debunked as a deceptive creation of his father. But you and I have a distinctive and great privilege because in the Scripture, we have several inspired accounts from trusted sources, God's Old Testament prophets and Christ's New Testament apostles, describing heaven, describing what you and I would see if God allowed us that same privilege. And so while He isn't going to give each of us that opportunity until we die or Christ returns, in the meantime, we have an inspired record 
of several visions of heaven. And I want to begin by showing you these. Keep your finger there in, in Revelation. We're coming back there in a moment. But turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. This is the first of the biblical records. Exodus 24, verse 9 says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God and ate and drank. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Well, if you're in Christ, someday you will. Let's turn to the second one. It's much more familiar. It's Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Turn over to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we have really the fullest Old Testament description of heaven and of God's throne and at some, we're going to make our way back through this chapter as we interact with chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. But let me just point you here. Verse 1 says, Now it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And then he describes, beginning in verse 4, this storm coming That's an unusual storm, and as the vision unfolds, he sees what amounts to the chariot throne of God, supported by the cherubim. And eventually, he gets a vision of the divine glory. Verse 26, now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli. That's a brilliant blue stone. I have a a piece of it in my office in appearance, and and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it, and from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire, and there was radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and then heard a voice speaking. Turn over to Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, we studied this together, but you remember this is one of those great revelations. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The courts set, and the books were opened. And it goes on to describe the, the death of Antichrist. 
Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming up. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his throne is one which will not be destroyed. Those are all amazing insights into the throne room of God. But without question, the, the fullest description of heaven and of all that surrounds the throne of God comes in the section of the book of Revelation. Turn back with me to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This section, verse, chapters 4 and 5, really began the heart of this book. Let me read just a portion of it for you. Chapter 4, verse 1, this is how it begins. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and because of Your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5 goes on to describe the, the seven-sealed book that the Father holds in His hand, and the Lamb who comes to take that book, and of course in chapter 6 begins to break those seals. Together, the, the great lesson of these two chapters is this. God is infinitely worthy to sit on the universe's throne and to judge its treacherous rebellion against Him, and He will delegate that judgment to the Son. That's really the message of these two amazing chapters. God is infinitely worthy to sit on the universe's throne and to judge its rebellion against Him, and He will delegate that judgment 
to his son. These chapters in the context of the book of Revelation are really a prelude, a prelude to the judgments that God begins to unleash on the earth during the great tribulation. They begin in chapter 6 with the, the breaking of those seven seals on the title deed to the earth that Christ holds. In these two chapters, we have an accurate description of what heaven has always been like. And that's how we often treat these chapters, right? It's like this, this timeless insight into the, the scenes around the throne. And there's an element of truth to that. But the events that unfold here in these two chapters are not timeless. They actually occur just before the seven-year tribulation. John here sees events that will begin to transpire that will initiate the Great Tribulation. Now, the overview of these two chapters, of the outline that we'll be following, chapter 4, I've entitled, The Scene in Heaven, The Father and His Throne. Chapter 5, I've entitled, The Search in Heaven, The Lamb and His Book. Now, just to remind you of the context, in chapters 2 and 3, Christ was walking among His churches. He was dictating letters to His churches. In chapter 4, the scene changes dramatically, and we see the Father in heaven on His throne. This chapter begins with the apostle's invitation to God's throne. He is invited by a major character in this book, whom we'll meet in a moment, to come into heaven. Let's begin by considering when this happened. Notice verse 1 says, after these things, after these things. In the book of Revelation, this particular phrase, after these things, often marks a new vision. It does so in chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 15, verse 5, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1. So you can see again and again, this expression occurs to introduce us to a new vision that John is having. Here, John is referring, when he says, after these things, to what has just come before, the first vision that he received from Christ. You remember, John's first vision begins back in chapter 1, verse 10. And it runs through chapter 1, the vision of Christ Himself. You remember the glorified Christ and all of His glory there in chapter 1. But that vision doesn't end there. It ends with John hearing Christ in His vision dictate the letters to the seven churches. So what he describes in chapters 4 and 5 is a second vision that shortly followed that first vision in which he saw Christ and received the letters. That's when this happened. Secondly, let's consider what he saw. Verse 1 goes on to say, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. As the second vision begins, John looked in the vision, and what he saw was, was surprising. It, it arrested his attention. He says, behold, he's surprised to see a door a door, literally, the Greek text says, having been opened in heaven. In other words, John didn't see that this door, when it was actually opened, he saw it already standing open. The picture is, is like a door set in the sky that clearly marks an entry point into the presence of God. John uses the word heaven 
this door standing open in heaven, he uses the word heaven 52 times. And all but once, he uses it in the singular. But be careful when you run into this word heaven in the book of Revelation. It can speak of God's dwelling place, as it does in chapter 3, verse 12. It can be used of interstellar space, part of the universe that will be destroyed in chapter 21, verse 1. It can even be used of the sky, the the atmosphere, in chapter 6, verse 13. But clearly, here, this door is opened into the heaven where God himself dwells, as the rest of these two chapters makes it clear, into the very throne room of God himself. Now, let me just stop here and comment on something. When you look at chapter 4, verse 1, and you see this invitation to John, come up here, there are some Christians who believe in the pre-tribulational rapture who believe that this actually is the rapture of the church, that the command to come up here is Christ's call to all of his saints at the rapture. Now, let me just say that that is clearly reading into the text. There is no exegetical basis for that. And so, I don't think that's what we should see here at all. This is an individual invitation, as we'll see. John takes him up on it, and, um, and the events begin to transpire. However, let me just say this. When you look at the rest of Revelation, the evidence confirms that while verse 1 is not the rapture, the believers are gone before the tribulation begins, before these events begin to transpire. Think of it this way. In in chapters 1 to 3, the church is clearly on earth, right? You have the seven churches, and the word church occurs 19 times in those chapters. In chapters 4 and 5, you have these elders, whom I will argue in a little bit, represent the church. They're already in heaven, Now, as you walk through the rest of the book of Revelation, there are passing references, several passing references, to the saints on earth. But we're not told who those saints are, but we are told that there are multitudes who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period itself. I think as we'll walk our way through it, you'll agree it's it's far more likely that the saints who we discover on earth during the tribulation are far more likely to be those who come to faith during the tribulation. Then you come to chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, and you have the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven before the second coming. And then in chapter 19, you have the church returning with Christ from heaven at his second coming. Chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So the church is not clearly present on earth from the end of chapter 3 until the second coming in chapter 19. What is the reasonable explanation that they have been removed and that they have been removed in the rapture? Now, before we leave this point, let me just briefly remind you of what the Scripture teaches regarding the pre-tribulation rapture. That's not the major point of this passage, but 
it, it occurs, I believe, between chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's not recorded for us, but clearly we're going to meet these people in heaven that I think are the saints. And so let's talk about Christ's return. Scripture teaches that Christ's return will come in two distinct stages, separated by a seven-year tribulation period. The first stage is the rapture. It comes just before the tribulation begins. Christ will come in the air. He will come for his saints to take the saints back to heaven. The passages that deal with this issue all record those realities. Then comes the seven-year tribulation. At the end of that seven years, there is a second stage. It is called the second coming, or Christ's coming in glory is another way it's sometimes referred to. It comes after the tribulation. Christ will return to the earth. He will put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will come with his saints, and he will come to defeat his enemies and establish his earthly kingdom. Now, I submit to you, those are clearly two different events. Now, I'm not taking time to defend all of this. If you want that, I did a couple of messages on the rapture back when we did the systematic theology series. You can go back and find that online. There are several ways that the event called the rapture differs from the revelation in glory or the second coming. You have the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. You have what is clearly the revelation in glory, the second coming in Matthew 24 and 25. When you compare them, this is what you discover. In the rapture, Christ gathers his own. In the second coming, the angels gather the elect. In the rapture, the resurrection is prominent. In the revelation and glory, there's no mention of resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ comes to reward. In Matthew, he comes to judge. In the rapture, believers depart from the earth. In the revelation and glory, unbelievers are taken away. In the rapture, unbelievers remain on the earth. In the second coming, believers remain on the earth. So there is a great deal of difference between these two events. So believers then, and the point I want you to get is there's no rapture in a verse in Revelation in this section. But what I want you to see is that when you look at the first three chapters, the church is clearly on earth. When you look beginning in chapter 4, the church certainly appears to be primarily in heaven. And when you get to the end, we're coming back from heaven. Everything points to the reality of the rapture. So believers then are gone before the tribulation begins. Can I just say, as we study the judgments that are unleashed on this earth during the tribulation, and as you reflect on the gathering storm of the wrath of God and of the Lamb, you need to thank the Lord Jesus Christ that He rescues us from the wrath to come. So, back to our text, having taken that little aside, We've, we've considered what he saw. I also want to consider whom he heard. Verse 1 says, And the first voice which I had heard. After John saw the door, he heard a voice. And he recognized this voice. It was the first voice that he had heard. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, this is the first vision, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches 
And they're listed, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. He goes on to describe the glory of Christ our Lord. So the first voice that John had heard was the voice of the risen, glorified Christ. And now when we come to the second vision in chapter 4, Christ is speaking to John again. Consider, fourthly, what it sounded like. It sounded like it did the first time. Verse 1 says, And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. God doesn't whisper when He speaks. It's like a trumpet. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, He is Worthy. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.